So it's a pleasure to welcome to our series this morning, Mr. John Adjimus, Executive Chairman of the Jager Group and founder of Public Hospitality Group, one of the country's fastest growing pub conglomerates. John, pleasure having the opportunity to have you on our program. As I understand it, you're the son of Greek parents and grew up in Sydney's eastern suburbs attending Cranbrook School. Take us through a little bit about your background, if you could. Yeah, look, um, first of all, thanks for the opportunity. And uh, feel very honoured having regard to some of your previous guests who be here today. I was educated at Cranbrook School and um, uh, my parents uh, worked very hard to provide good education uh, to us. Um, I have two older siblings um, as well. At the age of 13 my father passed uh, which was uh, particularly a difficult time. I had a very close relationship with my father um, but I think that it's fair to say that there, on reflection now, that was a big part of the character building in me, and and um, and so whilst you know at that time you don't really uh, see the benefits of something like that, um, you know certainly I think from my perspective it helped me mature much earlier in life, and and probably explains a bit more about um, my career progression as well. Tell me about the influence your father had on you up until the age of, of 13. What did you learn from him? Look, uh, one thing I say um, to people who have asked me about, about my relationship with my father is that um, I had 12 wonderful years and, and uh, sometimes some people just don't get that opportunity to have such quality time with an individual and so I feel blessed for that. Um, he uh, taught me from a very young age the importance of doing a hard day's work. And in fact, I'd spend my holidays actually going with him to, uh, he had a food service business, um, which, um, which we sold after his passing. Um, and, uh, you know, I would spend holidays actually being with him at a young age uh, at his warehouse doing work. and. Um, I knew no other way but through a hard day's work, that's how you actually uh, got the rewards in life. And would that have been your first exposure to business? And the, the reason I ask is following completion of your high school studies, you enrolled in an economics degree at the University of Sydney, graduating in the year 2000. Was that part of the impetus of, of wanting to study business and economics? Yeah, look, I, in fact, um, I got a good exposure very early in the piece. Uh, through going to work with dad, but also being the only son in a Greek family, there was a lot of emphasis on the boy. Um, and my mother uh, still had some things to work through at the time of his death, which was in the early 90s, the recession we had to have. And so I found myself from the age of 15, 16, attending meetings with my mother um, as we worked through some of the you know, the post issues relating to my father in, a, in an economy which, you know, globally around 1990, 91 was pretty challenged. Um, so I think both parents had a profound influence in terms of giving me exposure and trusting me very early in my life, um, which again set the tone for what I wanted to do. and. Um, it wasn't clear it was going to be corporate advisory or mergers and acquisitions, but I certainly liked the idea of business and wanted to be part of that business community. And if I recall correctly, post-university you joined Gresham Partners in Sydney. Is that a fair assessment? So I actually joined KPMG first. So uh, it was 1999 and um, I went in to meet a... Uh, a person who was a friend of my brother-in-law's, uh, Chris Fatakis, uh, who's now passed unfortunately, but uh, he was running corporate advisory for KPMG in Sydney. And I went and had a cup of coffee with him. I was still to do a year of, uh, of, uh, of my studies and um, he offered me a role at the end of that meeting to come in over a summer break. And um, I took that role and and uh, after, towards the end of that summer break, he said, well, how many days are you required at uni in your final year? And uh, offered me a job 
uh, four days a week. So I put all my tutorials on one day and, and did four days at KPMG and then did, um, <coughs> did a day um, uh, at, uh, at university. Um, up until that point, I actually um, was working in the Sydney fish markets for a family friend uh, on the weekends while I was at university. And, you know, I, I often think back uh, around those 4.30 starts and, you know, when all my mates were getting home from being out and uh, sometimes I'd even go straight from, you know, being out myself um, and, uh, and working down at the fish markets in the, in the middle of winter. Um, and I worked Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and was at uni Monday to Thursday. Um, and I thank my mother for that. Um, whilst she had the means to support me, um, she certainly didn't hand out things to me. And, um, and you know, quite frankly, I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. So, um, yeah, so KPMG was where I began in mergers and acquisitions and, um, and spent a couple of years there and then moved to Gresham partners in 2001. It's clear that you've got a, a phenomenal work ethic which has obviously been instilled uh, by your family. Take me through your first exposure to mergers and acquisitions at KPMG and, and later corporate advisory at Gresham Partners. What sort of deals and transactions were you working on? It was interesting, back in that, those days KPMG wasn't known to be a, uh, a mover and shaker in the mergers and acquisitions world. It was it was an offering that they had that essentially was to service existing clients. Um, Chris was an ex-banker, um, or he was a banker with one of the investment banks and they brought him over to try and change that narrative. And, um, and, so, and he was doing that progressively and Chris ended up being on the takeovers panel as well and was a wonderful mentor early in my career. But... I remember the first transaction we worked on, which we pitched against some of the investment banks, and it was at that time of that summer vacation work, and it was the uh, Rickett and Coleman had just mer merged with Benkeys, I'm really testing my memory here. Um, and they wanted to offload a whole bunch of brands, which was a circa 50 to $100 million deal, which was a big deal for KPMG at that time. And, um, and we won that piece, and I worked in a deal team putting together the information memorandums and, and the data room and running that sales process. And it was the first of its kind in terms of, you know, starting to look towards a larger deal value, one in which we were engaging with private equity as a buyer audience, but being on the other side, and was a bit of a stepping stone uh, for KPMG um, uh, yeah, to, to actually change from just being a corporate advisory business servicing a tax client or something like that as a, as a, as a secondary. Um, in this case, it was looking to be a primary advisor. So KPMG in the initial part of your 20s, then Gresham Partners and then back to KPMG. Talk us through that period. What prompted the decision to return to KPMG? I might explain a bit around the decision to go to Gresham. And um, in fact, one of the associate directors I was working closely with at KPMG was going over there. And, um, and I wanted a, a bit more public market experience and KPMG wasn't known to be doing the, those pieces of work at that time. And so it was with a heavy heart that I left KPMG. I, um, I really enjoyed my time there and they gave me my first opportunity and loyalty is a lot to me. And so it wasn't a case that I just simply said, listen, I'm out of here. Um, it was uh, me taking Chris on a journey and explaining a bit about what motivates me and why I thought I could be better for KPMG long term if I went to an investment bank. And at that time, I was deliberating across... Um, there were a couple of firms. Um, some of the, the, the large US investment banks had also uh, approached me. And, um, and so, you know, I was young and wanted to work, and, but I wanted to work on some of the best transactions. And Gresham, when I joined in 2001 in April, was a very different organisation to what it is today. Um, uh, David Featham had set up the corporate advisory business um, 
it already existed through James Graham and Graham Rich and the founders, but he'd set it up uh, where it was more standalone and um, you know, West Farmers had an investment in Gresham and, and so they already had good exposure to West Farmers type deals, but David wanted to take it into a, to another space. So um, he, at the time, corporate advisory division was only six or seven people in Sydney and didn't have a Melbourne office and had a, a Perth office which had two or three people. And I walked in in April 2001 and as a junior analyst and they hired four or five people at that time and one of the first transactions I worked on was the back end of the BHP Billiton, um, which was an enormous transaction and uh, just helping out on some of the um, bits and pieces towards the end of that. And then went straight into a public markets transaction for West Farmers, which was the hostile takeover of Howard Smith as a junior analyst, and then rolled straight into the Delta Goldfields merger, which became Orion Gold, um, which was all transactions were north of a billion dollars. Um, and one of them was the largest transaction in Australian corporate history at that time. Um, and then each year it was at least two to three public transactions um, in which I worked on. And so it was across many different industries from commodities into wine with the Peter Lehman um, takeover defence um, into industrials. And it was a great experience. Um, I didn't see too much of the sun. <laughs> you know, I didn't have much, uh, didn't have many weekends to myself. Um, but the thing that was most brilliant out of it were the people in which I got an intimate exposure to the likes of Tony Berg, Graham Rich, James Graham, David Feedham, Chris Boehm, who then came in and, and ran um, the Melbourne office when we Gresham opened that. And, and to get that exposure at a young age and in each year being promoted, um, it was just, it was, a, it was a quality experience. And again, with a heavy heart, I sort of decided to um, part ways with Gresham um, to go back to KPMG. And what motivated me there was probably, fair to say, a bit more balance in my work life. Um, but more importantly, I thought I could bring a skill set to KPMG, which they didn't have uh, through public market transactions. And further to that, um, really make my mark in that business uh, and also within the KPMG partnership over time and see that grow into a serious player in the, in the corporate advisory space. You mentioned being promoted year on year then. What did you put that down to? Obviously hard work played a part, but was there any secret sort of ingredients to that success that you saw? I was never shy in asking questions and probably to the point of being annoying at times. But I felt like if I asked the questions, um, and I'd always open it up by saying, you know, um, we shouldn't be scared in honest answers and, uh, or honest suggestions and, um, and um, uh, you know, and I'm going to ask a bunch of questions, but I just want to save time and make sure that what I'm doing actually gets us to the right result. Um, that was the first part in those early, early years. Um, and that came out of me not asking enough questions. So that was a lesson learned. And so, um, and so I sort of put it down to that. Obviously work ethic um, was another thing. And, um, and also, you know, being really respectful for people who had been in a career path and had experience. Um, you know, it's, um, you, can't, you can't replace experience. And, and so um, you know, that's, that's probably the, thing, the key ingredients in those early years. So you leave Gresham and rejoin KPMG and by 2007, as I understand it, you were appointed a partner of the business age just 28, which is obviously phenomenal in anybody's language. How did you go about that? Was it the, the skill set and the, and the experience that you brought over from Gresham Partners into KPMG 
that led to that partnership? I think it was a combination of a couple of factors. Um, the first is that there was a skill set which I had, which others in the firm at the time didn't have to the same length. They may have had parts. Um, the second was uh, KPMG were looking at that time to younger partners as an energy to grow that, that business. Um, and then the third part of it was uh, Gary Wingrove being appointed, uh, who subsequently became CEO, but into a head of corporate finance role. And Gary knew quite a bit about me, moved from Melbourne to Sydney to take on that role. And he, um, he understood where I wanted to go in my career and how that worked within the KPMG partnership. And him alongside Rob Bazzani, who eventually became chair of our Melbourne office um, at the time in which I replaced Rob as head of mergers and acquisitions, uh, they really believed in me and took a chance at a young age. And, um, and I've got a, a high degree of um, respect for those guys. And you know, um, I'm very thankful to them as well. Um, they gave me enough rope to be able to grow, um, but also not too much as well. And so uh, it was, they, they really demonstrated some balance. I will say that I think, you know, I, I don't put things down to luck, right? I think you make your own um, through key ingredients in life, but um, it was pre-GFC and I think if it was 2011, it probably would have been a different situation. It was a bit more challenging then uh, to come into the partnership. Um, but at that time, you know, they, uh, all firms around were, were actually looking at ways in which they could grow as opposed to ways in which they manage costs. Um, and I was the beneficiary of that. So you're 28 and you're a partner of KPMG. Where did you see your, your life going at that point? You were later to be appointed National Head and Managing Director of the KPMG Australia M&A practice. But where did you see, so you're 28, where did you see your career trajectory going from there? Was that always a goal that you wanted to run the M&A practice at KPMG or was it something else? I never really wanted those sorts of titles. I was more focused on my clients. Right. It was more about how do we become the best advisor to our clients and how do we try to ensure that we're servicing them appropriately. Um, a byproduct of which was if you had success, you tend to get titles. Right? And I often sort of laughed about it because they, some of these firms, they give the titles to the best performing partners, which then takes them out of being active in the market. And some of us are not the best drivers of the business either. Um, so I hope that's a separate discussion. Uh, but, um, but it was always very client driven. And you know, I, I wanted to look at where my point of difference was in that. And, um, and so initially I focused on some key clients where I thought I could make a difference and really service them, and 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 in turn, then that became a key a key category of clients as well um, when I became head of the business. And what did you specialise in within the business? I mean, you the, became the as I said the national head of M and A for KPMG, but but what sort of what are the deals that you worked on? What are the some of the transactions that really stand out? I think there was the sale in two thirteen of Nine Perth back to Nine Entertainment, as well as many others. Tell us about inside that period what you were what you were working on. So you know a lot of investment banks broke down into industry specialisation. Uh, we did that at KPMG, and um, but specifically to me. Uh, I was very much around, as I mentioned just before, relationship with client, being that trusted advisor. And it's something I learned from Gresham. You know, Gresham would do large scale transactions like BHP Billiton. Um, it was the trusted advisor to the CEO and the chair. And then you would have a bunch of bulge bracket investment banks who would also be part of that, but the chair 
would tend to go to David Feetham, right? And the others would just plug into that format. So I wanted to be that to some key families and uh, I had earmarked those families through either people I knew or alternatively through the KPMG network. And the Gordon family was one of those. Um, they were an old client of KPMG through the Wollongong practice. And, and so, you know, there was a family there which I knew was underserviced and just wanted to be their trusted advisor over the course of that transaction and many others as well. Um, and so on that basis, it was very much around pinpointing those clients in which I wanted to really focus on and understand not only the transaction, but their business or their investments intimately. And, um, and so that's the way in which I approached it. When you reflect on that period, say 2007 up until you left in about 2018 or 2019, how did you see the Australian corporate landscape change over that decade or so? What were the, what were the key themes at play? I mean, obviously we had the financial crisis during that um, time period, it was a bit earlier in it, and uh, that, was obvious, that was very testing for any financial services firm like KPMG and then specifically around M&A and um, you know, with debt drying up and businesses finding it very difficult, um, there was a real challenge. Um, what we decided to do was pivot the M&A business from traditional M&A into some government advisory work. And we, we were very early in the piece through our telco team, we deployed them onto the NBN advisory team, um, sitting within our infrastructure framework. My, fame, my, my, my focus was trying to preserve as much of the team as possible. And at that time I was running the Sydney M&A group. Um, and so I wanted to keep as many people in jobs. And proudly I'd say that we only made a couple of people redundant and they were more around services that we just couldn't see ourselves going back into post uh, the financial crisis and we were able to preserve the roles of, within the M&A division of 95% of those in Sydney um, by deploying out into the KPMG network, putting people on secondment within our corp, within our clients. But that certainly changed the landscape and. Um, and what it meant for us was by having that team, which was in Sydney, probably 40 people at that time, 30 to 40 people, it meant that when the market did rebound, which was part of my approach, we had a team ready to service and we had continuity with our clients all the way through, right? And we were there all the way through with the same team so they could see that we're there in the bad times and hopefully the good times as well. And it positioned us well. Um, our Sydney business, which traditionally was um, the poorer cousin to the Melbourne M&A division, um, that Sydney division quickly leapfrogged Melbourne and became the, um, the, the engine room of the M&A group nationally. Um, and so, uh, you know, that was exciting that we started to really build out our team uh, even further and started to do better work on the back of a less competitive market post-financial crisis because the investment banks were still trying to find their feet. Clearly establishing and, and maintaining relationships are a core component of success in corporate finance and, and M&A. What are the, the other ingredients do you think that are required for success in, in deal making? You've got to be honest. Um, you know, it doesn't work if you're, if you're not honest. And, you know, the, I used to say to my guys, and, you know, we were the rare division in KPMG that worked on success fees and very small retainers along the way, but um, you'll, you'll earn more respect and longevity with your clients around the deals that you recommend them not to do than to do sometimes. And if, as a group, we don't have success because a couple of transactions fall away 
due to us being honest, that's something that I'd be happy with, right? Because it'll come back in multiples of that. And so, you know, it was it was a really important component component to 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 um, to the fabric of the MA business that I wanted to install um, while I was running it. Before we move on, I, I wanted to ask you, when you look back at that time, what are your proudest achievements? It's, it's about the people. And I was only the other day talking to a KPMG person who came and had a cup of coffee with me who's senior in one of the private equity firms. Um, and I said, what makes me really proud is seeing the success of so many of the people who are in the M&A group from sort of 08, well, even prior to that, but, you know, when I started to take on the leadership role and, you know, some of the guys who came in as analysts or, you know, at junior levels now occupy MD or executive director roles at JP Morgan. Um, and many of the investment banks around, around um, Sydney and even overseas. And to see people like that flourish where they spent five or six years at KPMG, um, whether it be in investment banking or in business or whatever it may be, that makes me really proud. Um, I think it means that we created a really good environment for those people, which is what I try to think about whenever I'm in business, whether it's hospitality or whether it's in investment banking. We've spoken about, obviously, the, the first chapter of your business career. Let's talk about your current business interests, in particular the launch of the Jager Group, the business you founded in 2015 as a private investment group. Correct me if I'm wrong, but whilst this business has since diversified into other asset classes and, and sectors, its initial focus and mandate was on, on property. Tell me about the, the shift from sort of investment banking and, and corporate finance into property and hospitality, if you could. It was actually in parallel. Uh, so I found it difficult to invest in equities while I was in a very senior role at KPMG, um, you know, with the firm typically having a touch point, whether it be audit, tax or advisory with a listed company. Um, I just, I thought it was more problematic to be investing in equities. So, and maybe it's the Greek blood in me, but real estate is something that I have a passion for and I was buying some of the real estate assets that I own today um, back in 2008, 2010 and Jagger was really formed, they're my initials, um, in 15 as a holding company but some of the real estate I'd, I've held for some time and so I would buy assets um, whilst a partner at KPMG. Um, I would find tenants, lease them out, have a manager, um, or in turn had my own financial controller, um, who's still with me today. Uh, and, um, and we would just collect rent and I would continue in my day-to-day -day operations uh, at KPMG and spend very little time on the property side, um, once I'd set it with tenants and other things. My format was to buy commercial real estate which didn't have tenants and uh, with a view of um, tenanting up and holding it. And uh, so it was vacant possession real estate I was attracted to in good areas and in hospitality typically. Um, and so the way in which I approached it was from the tenant perspective rather than the real estate first. So. I, you know, I found um, Neil Perry wanted to move Rockpool from Circular Quay and so I said to Neil, who was a personal friend, what about we um, find a new asset or a new property and we relocated and I bought a strata in that Burnsville Bridge Street um, and Neil moved in there, fitted it out for him and, um, and he operated a Rockpool in a... Uh, from there, from the Circular Key one. And that was an example. I did that with Kylie Kwong and up at Potts Point and some of the Fratelli Freshers and other things and sort of started there. Then it went into Pub World and I think, uh, um, you know, I wanted to take advantage of the uh, lockdowns that 
were put in place and the pub industry, which um, which some of the operators suffered and so bought some pub assets and then broke up the space, hospitality on the ground level, commercial offices upstairs and just rented those out, some of which form the basis of what we're doing now. Um, but, um, yeah, it's an asset class in which I've always thought to be very interesting and so, but property generally is, is, is a passion and Jagger was something that I formed as a holding company for investment purposes in 15, even though some of those assets I've had for much longer. And fast forward to today, correct me if I'm wrong, in excess of 15 venues, 500 plus million dollars in value, which is phenomenal growth over seven years. Firstly, what do you look for when you're acquiring either a new commercial asset or a new hospitality type asset? So uh, we're talking about public hospitality there. So Jagger owns public and Jagger has other commercial real estate outside of the hospitality assets, um, the 500 mils, the public hospitality. I think it's closer to 600 now, in fact. Um, in relation to hospitality assets, what we tend to look for is an opportunity whereby we can reposition that asset. Um, someone in the industry said to me when I bought the Strand and Empire Hotel off very experienced operators, oh, I think you're gonna really struggle with those two assets. Um, you know, the people you're buying off are very good operators, and they are, but they just were doing it in a different format. And so the way in which we looked at those assets were they're well-positioned assets, they're doing very well on the ground level, but there's greater opportunity in everything above the ground. And so I'll take the Strand, for example. Um, we decided to refit all the rooms upstairs and take them back to what they were many years ago, which was really nice accommodation. And then we decided to invest in a rooftop and what we've done and achieved is a weekly turnover, which is two times what in a very short period of time what the previous very good operator did, right? Same with the Empire as well. So it's what we look for is um, a way in which we can approach it in a different manner where we can drive the asset. We also look at assets where we can change the composition. So in other words, we might introduce many revenue streams, ground level hospitality, you know, um, up accommodation on levels one or whatever it may be into a rooftop or something else. Um, and we also look at opportunities whereby we can actually do planning and unlock further value. And often a lot of these assets are owned by publicans for many years and they don't actually look at the controls and there's a lot of scope. And the way we've approached public hospitality is that we're an end-to-end -end model. So we have our own design team, which includes three architects and three interior designers. Our own construction team where we have a head of construction, three construction managers, seven or eight site managers, and then we engage directly with subcontractors. Uh, into our operations world, um, led by, I think, the best in the business in Peter Krennis. And, um, and we operate then, and we operate from a food and beverage perspective, from an accommodation perspective, from a gaming perspective, and we have general managers across all that, um, each in their lane, and then combined an ecosystem which means that we're extracting the most out of the buildings in which we're operating. So if you, you take it at, at face value, it's essentially a repositioning type strategy. I wanted to ask you, if you look at some of the recent transactions you've done, Noah's Backpackers in Bondi for 68, Bill the Strand Hotel, which you mentioned for 17, Camellia Grove Hotel for 16 as well. If you look at the last couple of years, there's obviously no shortage of opportunities to reposition assets and and be able to input those multiple revenue streams of development upside and 
whether it's pokies or whether it's accommodation or um, whatever it is, are you finding that it's more difficult, more challenging, more competitive to find those opportunities in Sydney now? Uh, look, it is. I mean, I through the first lockdown, I like swimming against the tide and I spoke about how I wanted to keep the team preserved at KPMG through the financial crisis, which would give us a string, springboard into the market recovery and how we could service um, our existing clients and then grow. I took the same approach with the hospitality business. I was trying to option up or do long settlement deals in that first lockdown and shortly thereafter. Um, I would say it's calculated risk. Um, but uh, there is risk and, you know, and so I made that decision um, to do that um, and the deals in which we were finding at that time, you know, there were much more of them and much better pricing in that pub world. Um, but at that time I didn't have an operating team. Um, you know, I was still buying real estate and looking to actually build that operating team when we came out of it. And so my main focus was the refurb process when lockdowns ended, or we started that refurb process to position into lifestyle products. And that's how we see the group, a lifestyle group. Um, and, and so Peter and I have been longstanding friends and he still had commitments at Crown, but wanted a new challenge. And so, it wasn't until Pete sort of came on board formally um, around 12 months ago, but we'd been talking in the lead up to that, um, that we had built out the, the framework of our operating team, which enables us now to look at things differently and assess things differently. So we can look at a potential hotel or when I say a hotel, more a mainstream accommodation um, asset or a, or a pub, and we can actually look at our own internal data points which are based on fact and history and apply that principle to what we think we may be able to do to create a forecast, which gives us our own view around what we can pay and what it will be worth. You know, and to give you an example, I acquired down um, in Oxford Street, I'm pointing in the direction where it is, uh, uh, the Arts Hotel in the Rose Shamrock and Thistle in April last year. It was a competitive process. Um, many developers were looking at it. Oxford Street, Paddington, 1,500 square metres of land. Um, existing hotel, which was two, three-star, pretty average accommodation near the hospital and Allianz and a pub next door. Highly competitive process with developers. Um, we knew that we had a comparative advantage because those developers would have been looking to do office or residential, take a couple of years to unlock the planning. And so, you know, what price they'll pay, they'll have two years, three years of holding costs and build timetable. We wanted to approach it with a exempt development refurb type scenario. Now that hotel we opened two months ago, um, not the pub yet, it's in the press today about the pub, um, which will be opening around Christmas, um, but the hotel uh, we opened two months ago and in the first first uh, month of trading we're sitting at 60% occupancy, we're at 100% this weekend, 56 rooms, vibrant hosp uh, poolside hospitality offering and ground level. Um, and so it, that enables us to have data around any other boutique hotel that's out there and what we think we can do now as well. You know, your rates, your, how you'd go about, because um, we don't go through OTAs, we don't go through Expedia and other things, we do it through, um, you know, marketing uh, and socials and search. Um, it's a different approach. Um, but one in which our experienced team has executed on before. So, you know, we think there's pockets of value still out there. Um, pubs, a bit more challenging. That market has run hard. Um, uh, but in the hotel space, it's probably a bit behind. 
So where we're at today, we're looking at assets where we can reposition, um, where, uh, you know, it's where pubs were 12 months ago or 18 months ago. So the recovery has been a bit slower. And from what I understand, there's also a geographic diversification. There's two hotels, one in Collingwood and one in St Kilda that you've got down in Melbourne. Where are you seeing the opportunities outside of Sydney? Are you seeing opportunities in regional areas or in other pockets of Australia, be it Queensland or elsewhere? So we've got three in Melbourne. Uh, we've got one in Kew as well, um, which uh, got a bit of attention around uh, the time of the election because uh, there was a uh, there was a bit of paint from a teal candidate, uh, and uh, and the federal treasurer at the time wasn't wasn't too happy about all that, and we found ourselves right in the middle of it. And one thing we don't do is play politics. We just we just want to sell sell beer and good food and great rooms and and create um, a great experience for our customers. So. Um, but uh, we do have three in Melbourne. That's, that asset specifically is going through planning at the moment. Um, and we've got a really interesting model that we're going to be pursuing in, on that asset because we can do 10 stories on that site. Um, but we do own a hotel in Ballina. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's on Shelley Beach uh, called The Beach House. It's, um, we're going through council and some matters in relation to that. And we've got something in Crescent Head as well which we're doing a refurb on at the moment. We like that regional side. Um, we think there's a lot of opportunity in relation to that. And we want public as a brand to be seen as a trusted brand from an experience perspective. That our customers go into a public venue and they know they're gonna get a quality experience right, um, at an affordable price. Um, and so, it's the execution of that that we're very focused on. And one of the things that Pete and myself always talk around to our staff is, a bit like my KPMG experience, always think of your clients first. There's a lot of hospitality people that actually think more around what they want, right, as operators and owners. Um, we want to be thinking about what our customers want as opposed to what we want in our venues. So, we take it very much an approach in relation to you know, customer first. Where do you look for or to for inspiration in terms of that brand building, obviously, in Sydney and, and recently with the expansion of Melbourne? Maryvale's done it very well. Lucas Restaurants have done it very well in both cities. Is there one of those sort of brands that you look to either globally that have become a, a real lifestyle brand that, that you're trying to emulate in some regard? Justin and Chris well um, and have the highest regard to both um, individuals for creating uh, some groups um, of real significance and scale. Um, at the time we were thinking about funding options, it was earmarked that we were thinking about an IPO and um, in the not too distant future. and. Um, and uh, there were some articles comparing us to a Maryvale and other things. I mean, um, yeah, from, from my perspective, I don't even dream if I, uh, we, we create um, a fraction of the business of what Justin has. But we're, if, if, we're, if I was spoken to at that time, I would have said, look, we, we're positioning ourselves in a very different manner. Um, we are very uh, accommodation led in our approach. So all our assets, um, bar only a few, two or three, have accommodation as part of its offering. And so it's around that ecosystem of, you know, checking in, having a vibrant hospitality, having a place to be able to have a meeting, um, and this engagement uh, within our building is what we're trying to achieve as opposed to the pure food and beverage type model. Um, and that's how public wants to position itself going forward. The way in which I would see ourselves, if I had to compare us to a particular brand, it's not just around our execution and operations model, it's around what happens to get us to that point. And so Citizen M is a good example of that overseas. They, have the identification, the design, the build, the operation, right? 
it's all and sundry, and that's what we, you know, that's what I'd like to see over time. I mean, that's what we're doing at the moment. Um, and and so, very nice to be mentioned in the context of, 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 of Maryvale or, or Lucas Hospitality Group. Um, but we do want to see public be a very different offering. Before we move on, how, how, big, how big could this brand be or how large do you want it to be? Uh, it's, it's not so much about how large it, it could be because um, it's more around we will grow when we know we can create the pillars of what our offering is. So we'll continue to grow as long as we can satisfy that. And what I mean by that is the key pillars is we want to have an intimate, authentic relationship with our customers, right, across many different ways in which we can have that relationship with them. And so while we continue to do that um, in the market, we're, and we can continue to fund that, and there's opportunities out there to achieve that, we'll continue to grow. Um, and so uh, to add to that, obviously we need the right people to be able to create that environment for our customers. And so a key component to it is the people within our business and how we execute as well. So you know, right now it's quite a challenging environment, finding staff and, and so we won't continue to grow if it means that we can't find the right people to be able to create that experience for our customers. And we can't, we won't continue to grow if we can't create the right working environment for our people in our business because the reality is that, you know, all we're going to create is a working environment where you tie people out and that's the last thing we want to do. A couple of questions to, to finish outside of your typical business activities being Public Hospitality Group and Jager Group. I wanted to ask you about uh, some of the interests that you've held, in particular in technology, in film, in mining and in energy. What guides your philosophy in investing or sitting on the boards of some of the companies that you have previously done or that you sit on today? I think Loris Energy being one and Skyfire Limited being another. It tends to be around, and they're, they're all held in Jagger. Um, so Jagger's an investment vehicle, as I mentioned earlier which invests across many different asset classes. Um, and I, you know, the philosophy is around the people who I'm backing. So all those examples that you just gave are ones in which uh, it's been a particular management team or a particular person who's brought me that opportunity, um, who I believe in and who has explained to me a particular opportunity and a way in which they can affect a strategy which is going to disrupt or you know, create a really interesting um, value enhancer or opportunity. So um, because I'm not actively involved in those, yes, I might be a board member, but it's a non-exec type role, it, it comes down to who's executing. And so I will invest when I feel comfortable um, around the people who are executing it. And often it's led by the person who brings it to me and, and I'll be backing them. And what about films? I think I've got this right. You're an executive producer for a number of films, Last Cab to Darwin, Boys in the Trees, as well as others. Had, what's, your, what's your association with, with the film industry? So uh, again, uh, Two Johns is the name of the, um, uh, the film production business. So it's a film and television production business. Um, two Johns, John Malloy and John Adjimus. Uh, so John and I met actually through his brother Mick, um, who's a bit of a personality in, uh, in Australia. And uh, John, was, uh, John presented Boys in, Boys in the Tree uh, to both Mick and I. And I really liked John and he was working at Mushroom at the time. And I said to him, um, look, you know, I'd like to do more in in the space, I love the creative area, the arts. Um, if I could act, if I could write well, um, then I'd probably do it. <laughs> um, yeah, although I'm sure my mother 
says at times I was a good actor when I was young. Um, but, uh, but um, you know, I do love uh, the, the creative and the art space. And, um, and John, um, I thought, is, and he is a real talent. And so we created two Johns and I think The Gloaming was our first production in under that banner, even though I'd done other other things um, and now Barons which has just been nominated for um, I think uh, Australia's best drama or miniseries I should say um, but again it was a decision where I'm backing an individual who has now grown the two Johns team and we're actively involved in a number of different projects um, and you know there was a philosophy beyond that which is streamers want content and so those those who can produce, I think, will be in pretty good shape. My final question is, so you've been involved in property, as I mentioned, in technology, in filming. What, what's next? What's the next chapter look like? Obviously going to build the public hospitality business as well as those other business interests, but are there any sectors or industries that you're not in currently that you're sort of looking to invest in or, or that you think offer long-term growth fundamentals? Uh, look, I think that my focus um, will be more around social investing going forward. Um, I've got a, um, a strong desire to spend a lot more time uh, building accommodation in the NDIS space um, uh, because I've got a nephew with a disability and I think the accommodation that's out there could be done better. And, and so that's an example of where my head's at in relation to investment. It's probably not driven around return as much. It's more around, you know, where can I use some of my skills and how they can be applied to create something which is more around social um, going forward. Um, I think there's some wonderful opportunities out there for investment um, generally. Uh, I know we're living in some pretty interesting times, um, but there's pockets of value out there. Um, but my main focus will probably be more on that social as aspects going forward. John Adjmas, absolute pleasure having you as part of the series. I know it's been a, a long time coming. You're a busy man and appreciate you coming on the program once again. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you.